So you can go ahead and open up your Bibles to John chapter 6. I heard um, a teaching by Pastor Bob Caldwell, who's the pastor at uh, Calvary Chapel, Boise, Idaho. And uh, a really interesting guy and and a great Bible teacher. And he made a comment, and I completely agree with him. If you only agree with Jesus when He agrees with you, you really don't believe in Jesus. It's one of those very stark statements, especially on opening weekend of Fifty Shades of Grey. (laughs) I know I mentioned it last week, and I told myself I'm not going to mention it again until I saw this morning that it's on track to be the highest grossing rated R movie of a Valentine's Day weekend ever. Surpassing the Passion of the Christ back in 2003, I think it was. And I know what some think. It's no big deal, Rick, you're being a fuddy-duddy. Of course you have to be, you're the pastor, I get that, but I don't have to be. I can go and see this and it doesn't really matter. And my question to you is, did Jesus enjoy it? I'm not your judge. Remember what we talked about a few weeks back. We stand before Jesus and judge ourselves. So you feel a little squirmy in my even bringing this up. Anyone who's seen it, I don't know any, maybe none of you have, and, and, you know, the real sick service is next hour. (laughs) But if you only agree with Jesus when He agrees with you, you really don't believe in Jesus. Would Jesus go see that movie or similar movies? No, but I don't think it's a big deal. You're disagreeing with him. And true, as a, as a pastor, teacher, I realize there are a lot of things I've accepted. I don't have, I would put it this way, I don't have a choice. You might say, yes you do, Rick. No, I don't. I am compelled in every way possible to find my life in agreement with Jesus. Now I fail at that miserably and often. But you need to know, I take that very seriously, and I do think through these things. And there are places I have limited myself from going to, and things I have limited myself from doing because of that. But it shouldn't be that way. What way? It shouldn't be simply that because I'm a pastor, I make those choices. I just want to have a life in agreement with Jesus. Do you? Keep that in the back of your minds. Let's look at the story today. It's in John chapter 6, and I believe it will be very familiar to you. John chapter 6, verse 1. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias, or Canaret. It's also called Lake Canaret. A large crowd followed Him because they saw the signs which He was performing on those who were sick. And then Jesus went up on the mountain. And there he sat down with his disciples. Now on the Passover, or the Passover, the feast of the Jews was near. Therefore, Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him. For he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but but what are these for so many people? And Jesus said, 
have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, He distributed to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were filled, He said to His disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which He had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. So, Jesus Perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Lord Jesus, I want to be in agreement with you. I think more than anything else, and I believe, Father, this is a prayer that is shared by every one of us. I think even for those who are not sure about you, There is a sense in our heart of hearts of wanting to be in agreement with with our Creator, with our God. You know, know, people people mess things up, Lord, and paganize things and make comments about being in in touch with the universe or in in alignment with the earth. And and it's just silly, uh, misunderstanding ways of saying truly, in the depths of who we are, we want to be aligned with You. We want to be in agreement with what is right. We want to be righteous, Lord. And I pray that as we consider this marvelous miracle, this sign that John reminds us of this morning, that You will better align our hearts wherever we've been, whatever we've done, that today You would draw us into agreement with Jesus. And I ask Your Holy Spirit, to do this, Lord. Starting with me. In Jesus' name. Amen. Peter wrote in 2 Peter 1.13, I consider it right, as long as I am in this dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my dwelling is imminent, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me, and I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. He says, I want to stir you up by way of reminder. I'm going to repeat some things to you, Peter says. I'm going to share some things again that you've already heard, but I'm going to share them again and again so that when I'm gone, you will continue to remember these things. Some things bear repeating. Some stories. uh, Some foods. (laughs) Some experiences bear repeating. In fact, repetition can be a very effective teacher. Let me ask you, especially you educators out there, have you ever heard of the Learning Pyramid? The Learning Pyramid was developed uh, by the National Training Laboratories in Bethel, Maine, back in the mid-60s. That should tell you something. The Learning Pyramid basically stated that there are certain ways that we learn that are more effective than other ways, lecture being the least effective way. That if we sit under a lecture, we may retain, well, less than 10%. That actually, we only retain 10% of what we read. 20% audio-visual, 30% demonstration, 
50% if it's in a discussion, 75% if we practice doing what we've been taught, and 90% retention if we teach others. Which means in our current situation, I'm retaining about 90% and you're lucky if you get five. (laughs) Right? This model, along with other educational insights at that time, I think, my opinion, gutted Bible teaching in the church. Because I think people began to look at these things and consider these things and and decide that, man, sermons of longer than 20 minutes duration were too much information. People can't handle long teaching. you got to get in and you got to get out. And in fact, the Pope has just announced that all Catholic priests now need to limit their sermons to about anywhere from 10 to 12 minutes. Because people can't retain, they can't handle it. Long periods of Bible teaching. Someone should have told the Apostle Paul. And as a matter of fact, someone really ought to fly over to China and get word to the underground house churches growing like by leaps and bounds there that sitting under four hours of preaching at a time is too long. Now, I'm not trying to make a case for long sermons. I'm really not. But as with many things from the 1960s, the learning pyramid was not as reliable as we may have once believed wasn't quite so true. According to a 2013 Washington Post article, cognitive scientist Daniel Willingham said the learning pyramid is flawed by its own limitations. He said so many of the variables in the learning pyramid don't include the other variables. He says so many variables affect memory retrieval. You can't assign specific percentages of recall without specifying many more of them. For example, the material itself. Now I can sit with a chemistry book and I guarantee you I will retain less than if I read one of the Gospels. My friend Ray may retain retain far more than I would. I'm sure he would. But I can read the Little House books to my kids and I retain a lot of that stuff. I love those books. Hand me a book on biology and I'm like glossing over. I don't even know what I'm reading. You've done that, haven't you? You know, you read a paragraph and you realize you don't even know where you were. You go back and you read it again. I'm seeing a lot of students go, yeah, that's my life, man. So the material itself can have a dramatic impact on our ability to retain information or the age of the student. That's going to impact retention. The maturity of the student. When I was a kid reading the Bible versus now when I read the Bible, I have greater retention now than I did back then. Previous knowledge of the subject matter makes a difference, which explains to us why God repeats again and again statements, principles, and stories in the Scripture. Because He knows if we've heard it here and we hear it again here, we're going to retain it better. That's why, in my opinion, studying through the entire Bible rather than just picking and choosing is more effective because it builds on itself. Because we retain more, the more we study the Word, the more we retain the Word of God. We didn't need less Bible teaching. We needed more. And I believe part of the reason our country's in the state that it's in and the world's in the state that it's in is that we have de-emphasized effective Bible teaching. In fact, there are two things at work here that are not even listed on the learning pyramid 
One is the material itself, the Word of God, which is unlike anything else. And the second, a constant for every follower of Jesus Christ, is His Holy Spirit, who teaches us, who who embeds these things in us, who causes us through the week to draw back to something we did here on a Sunday or on a Wednesday or out of our own personal devotional time. And if you will ask the Lord to help you retain His Word, He will help you retain it. But back to my original thought, He knows when things bear repeating. And so we come now, this morning, to the fourth sign in the Gospel of John. And it is the only one that is repeated in all four Gospels. That tells me God wants you to retain this one. He wants you to remember this one. He wants you to think about this one. It comes up in each and every Gospel. It's one of only two signs out of the seven that John gives us that are repetition of other signs. You know, the feeding of the 5,000 here, all four Gospels talk about it. The very next sign that falls on its heels, we'll get to Wednesday night, Jesus walking on the water. Matthew and Mark also talk about that. So there's something very significant about these two and why John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, would come back to them and say, I need to tell you about this one again. And I'm going to add a bit of information so that you can understand some things. Some things bear repeating. The miraculous feeding of the 5,000. Let's listen and let's watch even as the disciples themselves learn by experience. We're going to just walk this through again this morning as we do so often. Verse 1 of chapter 6. After these things, you know that's metatauta in the Greek. That means we're now moving forward in the chronology, in the timeline. After these things... Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee or Tiberias. Now, the Sea of Galilee is a beautiful lake. It's not a sea. And if you've seen it, you know it's not a sea. It's just a a beautiful lake. It's roughly 13 miles long by about 8 miles wide. It's smaller than, um, uh, what's the lake in Southern California that I can't... Lake Tahoe. Smaller than Lake Tahoe. They call it, in the Hebrew, kineret, which means harp or lyre. Because of the shape of it, it's kind of oblong and has a a harp shape to it. Later on, it would be called Lake Tiberias, named after Tiberius Caesar. And that's why John makes this reference, because when John is writing, it's largely to a Greek and a pagan audience, and they would know of the lake as called Tiberias when he wrote. Back when Jesus walked, it was kineret. Or the Galilee. Now, it's been roughly six months since the poolside healing of the paralytic in Bethesda that we looked at last week. And much has taken place. Verse 2 goes on and says, A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Matthew 10 through 14, Mark chapter 6, tell us some things that have happened that have gone on since the healing of the paralytic in Jerusalem. The disciples had gone out and and had returned from a very successful mission. They were out preaching repentance. They were healing people. They were given the power by Jesus to cast out demons. And when they came back, the other Gospel writers tell us, they were pumped. They were like, Lord, it was so cool. I'm like, come out! And the demon went fleeing. I'm like, yes! I mean, it was, it was such a rush. Can we do it again? You know, I mean, they were, they were hyped. But because of this ministry of the Twelve, and because of the ongoing ministry of Jesus, and because of the miracles that had taken place in Jerusalem, the Word was buzzing. 
People were excited. Things were moving. And, by the way, John the Baptist was dead. That also has happened in this six-month period. Herod Antipas had John beheaded. So think about the dynamic. You've got the twelve and they are excited and pumped up and they see things rolling and it's kingdom time, man. And then you got Jesus finding out that John, his cousin, has just been martyred, killed. And it has a heavy impact on our Lord who loved John. Who said, among those born of women, none is greater than John the Baptist. And so, this dynamic is playing out. And we're told in Matthew 14, 13, when Jesus heard about John, He withdrew there in a boat to a secluded place by Himself. And that aligns with verse 2, that now He shows up and this large crowd followed Him. He jumped in the boat, He and the boys, to get away. He told the apostles coming back from their mission, come away and get a little rest. Jesus was so good about that when you had a high point in ministry. It was time to dial down. It was time to get back to reality and to your relationship with God and to peace and not roll in all this fervor and excitement. You can only take too much. Come get a little rest. But again, for Jesus Himself, He needed a break. John was dead. So they got in the boat. They go across the sea. And when they land there and they arrive there, the people have now run around the the top side there of the Sea of Galilee and they meet Him there with all their needs and all their issues and all their stuff. They caught up with Jesus on the other side, the paparazzi. And the mamarazzi and all the little razzis were there. And they're coming with their needs. And again, this is a high point in Jesus' ministry. Though He may Himself may have been suffering a low point emotionally, may have been greatly sorrowful over the loss of John, for His ministry's sake, man, this is it. How would He respond to all of the excitement and all of the enthusiasm and all of the people? How would you respond? Would you run for dear life? Did you punch out a cameraman? <laughs> Paparazzi. <laughs> Would you tell them, look, I just need a break, leave me alone? Matthew 14, verse 14 says, When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. Mark 6.34 tells us when Jesus went ashore, ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them because they were sheep without a shepherd and he began to teach them many things. Jesus starts right back up teaching and healing. That's the need. That's his response. In the midst of all this furor, though he went to get away, it would be like me saying, I'm taking vacation, I'm going down to California to visit family with my kids, and I arrive down there and the whole church is there waiting. I'd be like, go home. Jesus began to heal. Jesus began to teach. What do you think that did for the disciples? The twelve. Gang, some things to note, some principles to draw out of this very familiar story. Number one, the compassion of Christ is comfort food. And I have found this to be the case again and again in my own life. That when I'm burnt, when I'm tired, when I'm weary, if I look at the compassion of Jesus, it is so comforting. It is so encouraging. 
It bears me up like nothing else does. I think, Lord, I've got my sorrows or I'm weary from ministry. Where can I get more strength? And he would say, how about from the God of all comfort? 2 Corinthians 1.4 Who comforts us in all our afflictions. So we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For the apostles to sit there and feed on Jesus' teaching along with all of the multitude. For them to watch Him tenderly, lovingly restore sight to a blind man, legs to a lame child, hearing to a deaf woman. How comforting would that be for them? I I was reading last week, Will Smith was interviewed. He's got a a new movie, I guess, coming out pretty soon. But he was interviewed about all his successes and failures as a movie star. And he said, you know, among all of his failures, the greatest failure on record for him was the flop of his movie After Earth. I think it was After Earth, right? It was the one, it was so disappointing because it was the one he did with his son, Jaden. That Will and Jaden Smith were going to star father and son in this, in this new uh, sci-fi thriller. And it was an absolute flop at the box office. And the next morning when all the numbers came in and Will Smith got the numbers, they got a phone call and here are the numbers and this not, does not look good. The movie's a failure. He said, I was lower than I had ever been for about 24 minutes. And then I got a phone call that my father had cancer. And he said, everything went into perspective. Suddenly everything made sense. Suddenly the failure of a stupid movie meant nothing. But listen, compassion is more than just life perspective. From time to time I will talk to, I'll meet with, I'll pray with people who are in painful situations. And I'll come home and it does, it gives me perspective. I'll come home to Cheryl. And I I don't tell her who I'm talking with or what I'm talking about, but there are so many times I come home and I just tell her I'm really thankful for her. I'm thankful for our family. I'm thankful for the life that, that God has given me because it puts me into perspective. But understand this. Compassion and the compassion of Christ is more than just perspective. It's not that the apostles were sitting there going, oh, you know what, yeah, we really, this really is what it's supposed to be about. Jesus is right. We should be teaching and healing. I know we're a little tired, but this is good. This, it's not about perspective. Godly compassion is always an overflow. That is, it comes from the comfort with which we ourselves are already comforted by God. When I see Jesus comforting people, I myself am comforted and am able to comfort other people with the same comfort He's given me. Which makes me very comfortable. (laughs) The comfort of Christ is absolutely, supernaturally amazing. And there is something wonderful in watching Jesus. And just experiencing His compassion. I would encourage you a very simple exercise in your life. If you are struggling, if you're having a hard day, read part of one of the Gospels. Just pick out a place where Jesus is at work. Where He's loving people. Where He's tenderly dealing with people. Where He's healing people. And see how He comforts. I guarantee you, you will be comforted. It's kind of how it works. 
He had within Himself the comfort of His Father. Jesus always knew the comfort of His Father. And therefore, out of the overflow of that comfort, was ever able to teach and to heal and to do His ministry and to continue to do the work even if He was weary or worn or sorrowful as He likely was at this time. Verse 3. Verse 3 says, Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there He sat down with His disciples. Now this is with the twelve, but it's probably also with the multitude of people who are now following Him. They have all signed up with Him. They are all in agreement with Him. This mountain is on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. I'll explain why in a bit. Actually, I'll tell you why right now. Verse 17, down further, tells us when they go back across, they go to Capernaum. So opposite Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee is the eastern shore. And there on the eastern shore, where the terrain rises sharply, it is what is today known as the Golan Heights. So when Jesus, we're told there in verse 3, when He went up on the mountain, He went up into the Golan. Which is a beautiful area and does kind of roll up off of the Sea of Galilee there in northern Israel. You know also it's the barrier between Syria and Israel. It's critical defensively for Israel today. But Jesus goes up there into the Golan Heights. He often would withdraw into these same hills to find solitude. But now He's surrounded by all these people teaching and healing and shepherding. And I may have to move because I'm starting to get bright sun. Who put that window there? Was that Paul? Where's Paul? Verse 3, Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there He sat down with His disciples. Now, verse 4, The Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore, Jesus, lifting up His eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to Him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? Wait, therefore? Therefore. What does the Feast of Passover have to do with the feeding of the 5,000? See, this is an interesting point that John makes. None of the other Gospel writers tell us that it was the season of Passover. Passover was near. It was almost time for the Passover. Just about to take place. John makes a point of showing us that. And then he says, because the Feast of Passover was near, he then turns to Philip and says, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? That seems like one of those random Bible things, you know, when you're reading through the Bible in a year and you come to it and you go, oh, that's weird, (laughs) and you just keep going. I don't know why it's there. It must just be a slip or a scribal error or something. No, it's there for a reason, and I'll tell you why in just a few minutes. Hold that thought. Verse 5. So verse 5 again. Seeing a large crowd was coming to him, he said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? Now, John's Gospel is the only one that tells us that names Philip and Andrew. The other Gospels, in talking about the feeding of the 5,000, just say he's talking with the apostles. But in this situation, it calls out specifically Philip and Andrew. Why? Well, Philip was from Bethsaida, which is right where they were. They were right there in the region of Bethsaida, so he would know how to get fast food fast. <laughs> Philip! Where do we get food around here? Where's the closest in and out? Is there a Mickey D's? Can we get a McFawaffle? Anything. What, what's around here? That's not why Jesus was asking. You see, verse 6 tells us, This He was saying to test Him, for He Himself knew 
(laughs) what He was intending to do. I love this about Jesus. He has this way of drawing us in, even when He knows what the plan is. Pulling us into the process. And He draws Philip in. Hey, where are we going to get food to deal with this situation? Only John tells us Jesus knew what He was about to do. And this He was saying to test Him. Okay, beep! This is a test of the emergency catering system. (laughs) This is only a test. For the next 60 seconds, you're going to have to figure out how to serve lunch for several thousand people. When the beef is over, have the food. And so here's Philip, stunned. What? Where to get food? Are you kidding? Now let me underscore this. Jesus always knows what He's about to do. We find ourselves in a dilemma. We find ourselves squirming, trying to figure out, how am I going to deal with this? How am I going to handle this life situation? How am I going to deal with this issue? And Jesus already knows what He's going to do. He's already planned it out. He already has a direction for you to go. He's just sitting there waiting for you. What do you think, Philip? What are we going to do with this? He doesn't do it to mess with us. Listen, understand, He doesn't test to mess with people. He tests those who have faith to develop in us more faith. And so, the second principle to note here, the foreknowledge of Christ nourishes faith. The foreknowledge of Christ nourishes faith. What do you mean? I mean, when I know that He knows what I don't know, it builds up my faith. I may not know what He knows, but I know He knows. (laughs) And I know He knows more than I know. And if I can know that much, my brother said to me years ago, I remember this, it's one of those standout, and he didn't even repeat it, I just remembered it. Ron said, you know Rick, you don't have to know, you don't have to know what the plan of God is. You just have to know you're in it. Ron can say some profound stuff, and that was a big one for me, and I've carried that with me my whole life. I don't have to know what he's doing, all I have to know is he's doing it. All I have to know is I am in His will. All I have to really know is that I am in agreement with Jesus. And He'll take care of the rest. The foreknowledge of Christ nourishes my faith. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 16 says, In the wilderness He fed you manna which your fathers did not know. They didn't know how to make manna. They didn't know how to generate manna. They didn't know what the manna mix was made up of. They had no idea. They couldn't get the ingredients for manna. They didn't know. God knew. And what He was teaching the people of Israel, same thing He teaches us in our lives, is as they wandered through the wilderness, He already had a plan. He knew what was on the menu. He knew where they were going to get water. He knew how to feed 2.5 to 3 million people as they... He didn't send them off and then go, Oh man, dude, where's Philip? We need a caterer. He knew. Jeremiah 29.11 When the people were in Babylon, He instructed, the Lord instructed Jeremiah, Send them a letter. And I want you to tell them this. I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. (laughs) We're in Babylon, Lord! We're in 
captivity. You're talking about our future? Yes, because I've always had a plan in place. Psalm 40, verse 5. Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders which You have done. And Your thoughts toward us. There is none to compare with You. If I would declare and speak them, they would be too numerous to count. Think about that. If we could think the thoughts of God, if we knew what His individual plans were for every one of us, just in the fellowship here this morning, it would blow our minds. And knowing that, it nourishes my faith. The foreknowledge of Christ. He's got a plan. All I really need to know is I am a part of it. So, verse 7, Philip answered him, (laughs) 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them for everyone to receive even a little. A denarii was a day's wage. 200 days wage. So about 8 months, 6 to 8 months salary, Philip says, would not be enough to satiate this crowd. The, the multitude was so big. He's saying, no matter how you slice it, no matter how you crunch the numbers, nobody is sitting down to lunch anytime soon, Jesus. There's just not enough food around here to do what you're asking us to do. Well, then Andrew steps in, verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are these for so many people? And Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. The grass detail tells us it's March or April. It fits along with the fact that the Passover was near. It would probably be about mid-March or so. Because mid-March there on the Sea of Galilee, there in the Golan, the grass would be green from the rainy season. It would, from the hot summer sun, brown up any time else in the year. But during that time, it's lush and green. That's why I love to go to Israel in that time. By the way, did I tell you we're going in 2016? We're going to Israel in 2016. If you want to sign up, be thinking about it. We have dates around. We had to change them, actually. It's going to be after Easter. So it'll be March like 29th or so to April 10th. So it's very, very tail end of March into the first week or two of April. Plan, if you haven't been to Israel, you are invited. It is remarkable. We'll have a meeting soon to talk about that. But it's green grass. John gives us that detail that that nobody else gives us. Jesus says, have the people sit down. The word people is anthropos, and it means everybody. It's not limited just to men. It's, it's like humanity. Have the masses. Have all the people sit down. But then note, he says, the men sat down in number about 5,000. And that word is Andres. And Andres means literally, specifically, men. So both words are used. And what John is telling us is there was a massive number of people, but the men among the people, and you Bible students know this, the men numbered 5,000. Add in the women and the children, the Mamarazzi and the and the little Razzis. Add them all in, and you're talking what? Ten thousand, fifteen thousand people, twenty thousand? I don't know. We can only guess, but we know it was huge. There was a massive number of people there on the foothills of the Golan on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee on that day, sitting down on the green grass. And Andrew, of course, looking at all these people and thinking this through, he makes a comment, there's a lad here, pulls him in, who has five barley loaves and two fish. And there are people who say, wow, what great faith. St. Andrew, a man of incredible faith, and you see it right here. I don't think so. 
Now, I'm not questioning Andrew's faith. He would go on to be a, a very faithful servant of Jesus. No question about it. But more likely, what Andrew's doing is pointing out the insanity of thinking you could feed these people. The absolute ludicrousy of their dining dilemma. Think about this. Five barley loaves. Barley was the poorest of poor bread. And these five barley loaves were probably little flatbread cakes. Barley enough for the lad himself. Five barley cakes. Five thousand men. One little cake per thousand. Are you kidding me? Cheryl makes a chocolate cake at home and it's really only enough for me. Five barley loaves and two fish. And John does something else the other gospel writers doesn't do. He uses a word here, opsarion, for fish. The others use uh, ichthus. But when you come to John, all of a sudden he says, no, no, actually it wasn't even ichthus, it was opsarion. What does that mean? Tiny little salted fish that were more of a relish than anything else. You'd mash these on these little flatbread cakes. So basically what you're looking at is five silver shekel pancakes with fish relish. (laughs) And it cannot beat the need. Andrew is not, he cannot be suggesting, why don't we see how we can break this up? He's saying, this is nuts. Even, I mean, this is all the food we've got. This is crazy. What Andrew did right was that he brought the problem to Jesus. You know, he did come to Jesus. He did grab the boy and bring him to Jesus and go, I know this is nuts. It's got to be nuts. I mean, this is all the food we have. What do you think? But I mention that just to say this. Principle number three, always add Jesus into the mix. Always add Jesus into the mix. Romans 11.36 says, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6 says, Yet for us there is but one God the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. And if you add Jesus into the mix, and it may be financial worries, add Jesus into the mix. It may be a physical ailment or disease, add Jesus into the mix. It may be a relationship problem. Man, add Jesus into the mix. When it says he was saying these things to test him, to test Philip, to test Andrew, to test the apostles, the test was to see what the measure of their trust was in him. In this ridiculous, impossible situation, how far are you willing to trust me? I think was Jesus' intent. He's the key ingredient. And you know what's interesting? When we add Jesus into the mix, He pulls us so quickly out of the flesh and into the Spirit. When we start to think about Jesus and His role in what we're dealing with, we may even start small. We may even start just with a little prayer. Lord, I'm, I don't know what to, I'm struggling here. It may be as simple as that. The moment you start to draw Jesus into the mix, everything changes. It's no longer a flesh problem. It is a God problem and He can handle anything. Obviously, feeding this many people was not going to naturally happen. There was going to have to be something big. Are you willing to ask God for a supernatural solution to a natural problem? 
Jesus said in Matthew 6.33, Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Ephesians 3.20 says, Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now I can think of an awful lot. I can imagine quite a bit. And Paul says, you, you don't know one, one hundredth of it. You don't know one millionth of it. Your great imagination, Rick, isn't even close to what he is capable of if you'll bring it to him. Is there anything unclear in those verses? See, first his kingdom is righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Is that unclear in any way? God is able to do abundantly far more beyond all we ask or think. Is that unclear? Listen, we need to spend less time crunching numbers and more time munching Jesus' bread. And trusting that we have a supernatural God who does supernatural things in supernatural ways to take us out of the natural and trust Him. Well, verse 11. Jesus then took the loaves and having given thanks, and that alone would be Wonderful to watch. He distributed to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. Verse 13. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Interesting. Why did Jesus care about the leftovers? Was he expecting a big doggy bag buffet later? I mean, what, what was the deal here? Now, on a very practical level, Jesus knew, as he said in Mark 14, 7, you always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them, but you do not always have me. So I wouldn't be at all surprised if the 12 baskets full of bread were taken and given to the poor. So that's likely. I I can't prove that, but the hungry poor in Galilee could benefit from this. And the way Jesus thinks and the incredible nature of His compassion, I can't imagine Him not doing something like that. Gather up all the leftover fragments. You know, we got to make sure we have these baskets full. But there's a deeper spiritual principle at play here. Gather up the leftover fragments. The word fragments in the Greek is klasma. And klasma is better translated broken pieces. The broken pieces. Principle number four. Jesus always cares about the broken pieces. Jesus always wants to gather up the broken pieces. What insight into the mind of Christ to see what He cares about. And we know from other passages exactly what these baskets indicated for Jesus. What the the baskets ended up meaning. What the whole picture was. And He was, at the same time, saving food, I believe, to distribute food. Jesus was saving food to make a spiritual point, to explain to His apostles, but also to you and to me, that He cares about the broken pieces. Mark chapter 8, verse 19, he said later to the apostles, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they responded. They said, 
12. And he said, when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets, large baskets, Jesus said, full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. And he said, do you not yet understand? (laughs) Talk about teaching by repetition. John only gives us the one feeding, the feeding of the 5,000. But we see from the other Gospels, we see that there were two feedings. A feeding of 5,000 and a feeding of of 4,000. We know that the the 5,000 were Jews. They were right there in that region of Bethsaida, up on the eastern shore of the Galilee. Jewish population. 5,000 Jews and 12 baskets of broken pieces were saved. And then when he fed the 4,000, they were Gentiles. It was in the region of the Decapolis, Mark chapter 8 tells us. And they collected there seven large, not just baskets, seven large baskets of broken pieces. And Jesus says, don't you get it? Twelve baskets for the Jewish people. Seven large baskets for the Gentiles. What are you saying, Lord? I care about the broken. I care about the broken pieces. It was for the broken pieces that He came to Israel. Twelve baskets, twelve tribes. It was for the broken pieces that He came to the world. Seven large baskets, all of humanity complete. I came for the broken pieces. And for the broken pieces, Jesus was broken Himself on the cross of Calvary. His skin broken as the nails went through. His brow broken as the thorns pierced. His side ultimately broken as the spear went in and the blood and the water rushed out. Psalm 147 verse 3 says, He heals the brokenhearted. He binds up their wounds. Isaiah 42 verse 3, speaking of Messiah, says a bruised reed he will not break and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Jesus has enough grace for all the broken pieces. And by the way, we have enough chairs for all the broken pieces. And if we run out of chairs, we'll add another service for more broken pieces. And you know and I know that we all are here this morning because we were, at least at one time, broken pieces. And Jesus said, gather up all of the fragments, gather up all of the broken pieces so that none will be lost. He hates losing. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 says, If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. So that none will be lost, He says. Wait a minute, Rick. Don't we know that some will be lost? Yeah, we do. But Jesus would say, you don't have to live that way. Yes, people are going to reject Jesus. People are going to refuse to walk in agreement with Him. Absolutely, we know that. That's a reality. It's a tragic truth of history. However, He does not want anyone to be lost. And neither then should we. 
And so we're called to pray, to intercede, to search, to declare, to gather the broken pieces before He comes with the attitude that not one will be lost, even knowing that some will still reject the offer. Then my heart, my attitude, and yours, we are called to be a people who say, not one should be lost. No matter how messed up they might be, no matter how much they may disagree with my theology, not one should be lost. Now, why did Jesus intentionally perform this sign, knowing what He was planning on doing, verse 6 tells us, why would He do it? Because, therefore, related to the fact that Passover was near. What's the connection there? Along with the Lamb, what is the most important element in the Passover meal? Bread. It's bread. And in fact, once the Passover meal was ended, the next morning would open with the seven-day feast of unleavened bread. Bread was a huge issue at that time. Perhaps, in fact, some commentators think maybe this multitude of people were all there because they were kind of gathering up, getting ready to head down to Jerusalem. But they knew where Jesus was, so they hooked around the northern end of the Galilee first to see Him on their way to the Passover. I don't know if that's the case, but I know that bread was on their minds. Tis the season for bread. It was the time of bread. And with that on the minds of the people, Jesus said, this is a good time for me to feed 5,000 with a miraculous bread. And it would draw to mind Moses in the wilderness. would draw to mind the manna from heaven. It It would be such a powerful example Well, of two things, really. The fourth sign, if you want to know, the fourth sign of John declares to us about the nature of Jesus, both the presence of God with His people, as He was so obviously present in the wilderness, so now Jesus is here saying, I'm with you once again. I'm feeding you once again. It's Me. The presence of God. And the provision of God. Jesus supplies both. Moses wrote in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, He humbled you and let you be hungry, and He fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that He might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And here is Jesus, healing, teaching, and providing. Did they get it? Kind of. Not completely. Draw back a bit. When we first started out, John, I told you there were three perspectives of of what was about to happen that was high on the minds of the Jewish people. Messiah was going to (laughs) come. That was a big one. Elijah was going to come before Messiah. And somewhere in there, the prophet was going to come. And they saw these three as distinct. We know this just from the reactions of the people to Jesus and when they talk about the prophet. They almost thought of him. I always thought they thought Messiah, prophet was one and the same. No. They saw Elijah coming, the prophet coming, and the Messiah coming. And so when they see this miracle, verse 15 says, perceiving, uh, oh, verse 14, sorry. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. John the Baptist came he's kind of an Elijah guy here's the prophet 
and they didn't quite get it. According, according to the learning pyramid, this first-hand experience should have yielded a great learning. The problem was, the, the caveat here, was that their prior education skewed their understanding of what was going on. They didn't quite understand. This is the prophet. They said they were so excited. Deuteronomy 18.15 says, Absolutely, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses said, from among you, from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. But they missed the Messiah. As this miracle took place, and there's no question, but that the people started to realize as the food was being passed out where it was coming from. But they missed it. The one they were hoping for was Moses 2.0. They were looking for the next deliverer, the next fighter, the next one ready to do battle with the oppressor and to restore the glory of Israel. The prophets. New Moses. They were ready to go to war with Rome if someone would just stand up and lead. F.F. Bruce said these 5,000 men would have constituted a ready-made guerrilla force for anyone willing to become their leader. And verse 15 suggests that a leader is just what they were looking for. Verse 15. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take Him by force to make Him king, withdrew again to the mountain by Himself alone. What did Jesus do? Fifth principle, Jesus took the bread out of the oven. If there was ever a time, think about this. If you're a politician, Jesus, in political terms, you missed it by withdrawing. This was not the time to pull back. This was the time to charge forward. This was the time to capitalize on your, on your rabbinical reputation. This is it. And Jesus withdrew. Heading straight up into the Golan. Removing himself from the hype. The hype of what? Superficial popularity. Jesus knew, as J. Vernon McGee so wisely points out, you can't make a king. You cannot force a king. A king's got to be born. Back in Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, the Magi come looking for Jesus. Do you remember what they asked? Where is He who has been born King of the Jews? We've seen His star in the east and have come to worship Him. Keep your finger right there in John 6 and quickly skip ahead to John 18. John 18. Verse 33. Jesus is there before that Roman representative Pilate And he says, Therefore Pilate entered again into the praetorium, summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, Are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests deliver you to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore Pilate said to him, So you are a king! And Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. 
For this I have been, what? Born. And for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And of course, you know, Pilate said to him, what is the truth? Back in John 6, Jesus withdraws from this royal rush on the shores of the Galilee that day. And we're going to pick up on what happens in the rest of the story Wednesday night because it continues to be compelling. But I want to end this morning with this. This leading statement, question of Bob Caldwell's that we began with. If you only agree with Jesus when He agrees with you, you really don't believe in Jesus. Would you agree with that? At the height of Jesus' popularity, He takes the bread out of the oven. He withdraws from the crowd. He removes Himself completely. And then, the very next day, He does something Far worse. The people catch up with him and they begin to question him and he starts to relay understanding and spiritual explanation for what had just happened the day before. And by the time Jesus is finished, he says something so deeply offensive that many of these bread-licking followers just walk away. Why? Because they can't agree. They cannot be in agreement with Jesus. John chapter 6 down in verse 66 says, As a result of this, many of His disciples withdrew and were not walking with Him anymore. Interesting. Chapter 6 verse 66. Now, I don't think there's anything spiritual to that. You know, the chapters and verses weren't even originally there. But it is interesting to note Because John writes in 1 John 4, verse 3, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, of which you have heard that is coming, and now it is already in the world. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Listen, understand, to confess Jesus is to put yourself in agreement with Jesus. As Lord and Savior, I agree with you, Lord. I want what you want. I accept what you say. I might not understand, but I will not disagree with you. And my, how our culture has disagreed with Jesus. And I could go down. I won't do it right now, but I could give you a list of of moral issue after moral issue after moral issue where America has said, we just don't agree with Jesus on these points. And if Bob Caldwell is right, and I believe he is, they don't believe in Jesus anymore. The compassion of Christ is comfort food. And His foreknowledge nourishes faith. And yes, He gathers up the broken pieces, not wanting anyone to be lost. But listen to what He says in verse 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek Me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. You seek Me, Jesus says, because the bread was agreeable. Because I had something that you wanted. You liked Me. You chased Me down because I might be able to 
restore your legs or your eyesight or your hearing. Because I could feed you bread. You, you came to me for what you could get from me. You did not come to me to agree with me. He says in verse 27, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him the Father God has set His seal. Man, as long as the bread was agreeable, the people were there. They loved Jesus. But when they didn't, note this, get this, when they didn't, it was not Jesus who withdrew from them. It was the people who withdrew from Him. And every time I stand in disagreement with Jesus Christ, I withdraw just a little bit from Him. You see, these movies and these social settings and these things that we would just slightly disagree with Jesus, these things that those, those fuddy-duddies, those overly religious people, those, those people who kind of have to because it's their role in ministry, they do those things, but we don't have to. Gang, these little things are determining whether or not you are agreeing with Jesus or withdrawing from Him. And I take that very personally. Not anyone's behavior here. My own. The reality that I make choices that cause me just to step back a little. Just to withdraw slightly. He said, what shall we... They said, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? They're still thinking works mentality. And Jesus just said this. This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. Do you believe in Jesus? And if your answer is an immediate, yes, I do, then the follow-up question is, do you agree with Jesus? Because if you don't agree, you don't believe. The prophet Amos, chapter 3, verse 3 says, can two walk together except they be agreed? And Jesus said very clearly in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. As we sing the song that Rachel's going to lead us in here, I just invite you to take these things to heart. And perhaps even ask yourself, Lord, where am I disagreeing with you? Where am I not doing what I know you said, but I just don't find it comfortable, or I just don't find it you know, aligning with my way of thinking? And I would challenge you this morning to set yourself in full agreement with Jesus Christ. If you have never given Him your life before, if you want to become a Christian, a follower of Jesus today, come forward while we sing this song. Pray with one of the people on our prayer team. We'll have you receive Christ. We can get you right into the waters of baptism this morning. If you haven't been baptized and you want to be, boom, there it is. But don't let a moment go by withdrawing any longer set yourself in full agreement with Jesus Christ let's stand together and sing